The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 9, to the chief musician, to the tune of Death of the Son, a Psalm of David. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory is perished, but the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Meditation. Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. We are in Deuteronomy 12, verses 8 through 19. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you and to inherit... And he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety. Then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. Then you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, whatever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike, only you shall not eat the blood you shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or your new wine or your oil or the firstborn of your herd or your flock of any of your offerings which you vow of your freewill offerings or of the heave offering of your hand, but you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all to which you put your hands. Take heed to yourself that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in the land. 
I say this from time to time, and I'll say it today when I have a sermon that's a little complicated. I'm not apologizing for it, but I just want you to know that this will be a little complicated, and uh, you may have to go back and read it or listen to it a couple times. It might be a 7 on a 1 to 10 scale, so don't be overwhelmed. Just listen and enjoy, and uh, we'll just go with that. This is entitled, The Place Where the Lord Your God Chooses, Part 2. One of the things that tends to annoy me, and there are a few such things in life, is when someone says that they are a part of a church that is going back to the way they did it at the beginning, the way the churches were supposed to be set up. Why is this annoying? It is because the Bible never. No, really, I want you to go check yourself. It never prescribes any such thing. Outside of the qualifications for elders and deacons and a few important observances, meaning baptism and the Lord's Supper, there is nothing about the structure of the church that is ever noted as being correct. And even how the Lord's Supper and baptism are conducted is not defined other than a few warnings from Paul concerning conduct during the Lord's Supper. We just know that we are to do these things. We are given absolute freedom to set things up as we wish. We can have elder-led, congregational, Episcopal, Presbyterian, and so on types of churches or any others. And yet, none of them are said to be either acceptable or unacceptable in Scripture. There is no time of the day that is prescribed for people to meet. There is no day of the week that is prescribed for people to meet. There are no order of events that must take place. There is no size or location of a church defined, and so on. Yes, there are prohibitions on things, but that doesn't mean all things must be done. For example, there is nothing to say that people must speak in various languages, or most translations say tongues, but there are prohibitions on speaking in other languages. How many can? There must be a translator, and so on. The same is true with giving. Israel was compelled to give certain things at certain times and for certain reasons. In the church, outside of a couple of basic principles on that subject from Paul, which we are to take as prescriptions, nothing specific is defined. Unlike Israel, we have complete freedom to conduct our affairs in whatever way we wish. And there is a reason for this. Our text verse comes from Amos chapter 5. It's verses 25 through 27. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikut, your king, and Kiun, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. In today's passage, Moses will start out by saying that the people had done whatever each thought was right in his own eyes while they were in the wilderness. Though they had the tabernacle, which was surely maintained by the priests from day to day in an orderly fashion, the people did not have the ability to do what the law prescribed for them to do. Therefore, they conducted their lives according to the way that they thought was best. However, what Moses tells them is that the time was coming when they would need to have unity of worship in order to live properly within the land. They needed to not do what they thought was right, but what the Lord, through the law, had prescribed as acceptable or not acceptable. The reason for this will be explained, but it begs the question. If this is so, then why don't we have to do such things in an orderly and prescribed manner as well? The reason for that follows logically after the reason for the Lord prescribing these things for Israel in the first place. To help us understand some of this, we can first evaluate a chiasm that I pulled out of the passage while doing this sermon. Chiasm is Deuteronomy 12, verses 12 through 18. I entitled it, Rejoicing Before the Lord. And I subtitled it, Allowances and Prohibitions. And I found this on 7 December 2020 when I typed this sermon. The outside verses are A, and you shall rejoice before the Lord, and down at the bottom, and you shall rejoice before the Lord. B, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates. And B at the bottom, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your gates. C, in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings. 
See, but you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses. D, and there you shall do all that I command you. D, these are commands. You may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or your new wine or your oil of the firstborn of your herd or your flock or of any of your offerings which you vow of your freewill offerings or of the heave offering of your hand. And then E, however, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, whatever your heart desires. And E, of the gazelle and the deer alike, only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it on the earth like water. And then the anchor verses, the unclean and the clean may eat of it. Great things such as freedom in Christ and chiasms, which help us to understand passages better, are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is the unity of worship. It's verses 8 through 14. So far in this chapter, Moses has been speaking of how to properly worship the Lord once they are in Canaan. He spoke of destroying the places where the inhabitants worshiped their gods. That was in verses 2 through 4. He also spoke of having a place specifically set aside for worshiping the Lord. That's verse 5. After that, he then noted that it was to this place alone that they were to bring their burnt offerings, their sacrifices, tithes, heave offerings, and so on. There, in the presence of the Lord, they were to rejoice in Him. That's verses 6 and 7. Those things now form the basis of what he will next say. Verse 8, you shall not at all do as we are doing here today. No shall you certainly do at all which we are doing here today. It's an interesting phrase for several reasons. First, the word translated as shall you do bears an emphatic mark. We've talked about this in the last few sermons, that and at the end, which is in order to stress what is said, you shall certainly not do. But what bears notice that Moses uses the word anachnu or we. The word is used only five times, imagine that, in all of the book of Deuteronomy. But three of the uses are him simply quoting the people, not inclusive of him. Like, oh, we got to go do this, or we got to go do that. Only in verse 5-3 does he elsewhere include himself in the narrative. That said, the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, anachnu, those who are here today, all of us who are alive Now, for the only other time in the book does he include himself directly in the statement, as we are doing here today. Moses is contrasting what is the expected behavior of the people upon entrance and what is happening at the present. By saying, you shall not do as we are doing, it is a sad note of the surety that he will not pass over into the land. Outside of the land, the people could not, by default, do the things of the law. They could not bring offerings they did not possess, such as the tithes of grain. They could not travel on a pilgrim feast to the spot where the Lord had chosen to place his name because they weren't in the land for him to choose a spot to place his name, and so on. Instead, there were limitations placed upon them because they were in their time of exile for having not trusted the Lord and having not entered the inheritance after leaving Sinai. It is what the Lord spoke of through Amos in our text verse where he said, Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? The obvious answer is no, they certainly did not. Certainly the daily offerings of the priests were made, but the people, the house of Israel, could not do what was required of them by law. Now Moses is stressing that those things would be required. The sad part of this, however, is that many of the things of the law were never obeyed or observed, even after entering and having received rest. A perfect example of this is found after the first exile of Judah in Nehemiah 8. He says these words, So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, Joshua was the guy that took them over the Jordan, right? So since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Well, that's a part of the law of Moses. They were supposed to do that. And after the time of Joshua, they didn't do it. Something similar said about observance of the Passover in 2 Kings 23. Even after possession of the land, nothing changed. But Moses had instructed them differently. 
They were to observe the law of the Lord instead of, verse 8 continues, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Before I go on, does anybody know the theme of the book of Judges? Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. That's correct. In the wilderness, people may have brought offerings to the Lord. If so, it was not in accord with the law of the tithe, which obviously could not be met. Or they may have brought nothing. Some may have observed certain things of the law, or they may not have. Nobody would have been held accountable if they didn't. For example, the law of circumcision mandated that every male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day, or they were to be cut off from their people. That's Genesis 17, verse 4. And yet none of those born in the wilderness had been circumcised. That's found in Joshua 5, 2 through 5. People did what they did without regard to the duly established laws of the Lord. Moses includes himself in this. Understanding the typology, those in exile for the disobedience of having rejected Jesus Christ, one can see that this applies to Israel now. There are people that have never been in this church before, so they don't know that from the time that Israel got to the door of Canaan, right down there at the very south, and they were about to enter the land, and they failed to enter the land. They were returned into the wilderness for 38.8 years. Everybody knows that. That is a picture. Everything that happens from that point on is a picture of them having rejected Christ and then been in exile for the past 2,000 years. Everything that has happened to Israel is, was pictured in that, and that's where we are right now. The people of Israel, even today, have the law, don't they? And yet outside of the culturally expected customs, they do not observe the law at all. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. If you don't believe me, go attend a synagogue and see. One can see the obvious parallel right here. Israel of Moses' time is going to enter Canaan even though they have not been observing the law. Everybody got that? They're going to enter, but they haven't been observing the law. Thus, it cannot be by observance of the law that they are entering the land of the inheritance. Everybody got that? Yeah. Parallel for today. Israel as a nation is going to enter the kingdom age even though they will not be observing the law before that occurs. Daniel 9, 27. They're going to be given the law for seven years. They will not be observing it. Therefore, it cannot be by observing the law that they will enter the inheritance. The truth of this is seen in the next words. Verse 9. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. Here, like in verses 1, 5, and 7 from last week, the words go from the plural to the singular. You all, plural, have not come to the rest and the inheritance which Jehovah, your singular God, is giving you singular. Moses goes from speaking to the people individually to referring to them as a nation, a collective whole. The obvious reason is because not all of the people will obtain the inheritance, but the nation assuredly will. In this, he uses the word menucha, meaning either rest or a place of rest. Moses is saying that they have not yet obtained such a place or state of rest. The main point of Moses' dialogue is that the people have the law, but they have not been observing the law. And yet, they have been brought to the inheritance promised by the Lord. As this is so, it cannot be by the law that they will obtain the inheritance. Anybody here, this is the purpose of the book of Galatians. Anybody here that's called on Jesus Christ and was saved did not do it through works of the law. And yet the Judaizers were coming into Galatia and telling the people you need to observe the law in order to be saved. And Paul says, you're already saved. You already got the spirit, right? And that's what's happening with the Hebrew Roots Movement today. They're doing the same thing. However, observance of the law is the anticipation once in the inheritance, right? And yet they failed to observe the law in the land, right? We just saw that when we quoted Nehemiah chapter 8. And not only did they fail to observe, they were actively disobedient to it. In this, they were exiled. They were returned apart from observance of the law. There's nothing about them observing the law while in exile, right? They were returned apart from that, and yet they were then exiled again. They are today in the land, and yet they are not observing the law. Nor will they, even after the next temple is built. And yet they, as a nation, will be entering the kingdom age. But it is not by the law that this will occur. The law is the expectation, and yet it is not the means of obtaining the promise. Therefore, it is the fulfillment of the law and the imputation of that act through the new covenant 
that provides what is needed to complete the process began so long ago. Thank God for Jesus Christ who did this for us. It is so clear and it is so obvious and yet it escapes Israel to this day. And unfortunately, it escapes countless people who were never given this law in the first place and yet they bring themselves back under this impossible yoke of bondage. And when I call it a yoke, it's because Jesus called it a yoke, Peter called it a yoke, and Paul called it a yoke. It's not my words, it's the words of Scripture. Verse 10, but when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, the words go back to the plural here as Moses speaks to all of the people individually, you all. Moses takes, again, it as an axiom that the people there before him would cross the Jordan and go into Canaan, but that he would not do so. Does everybody remember why he is not? What is the typology? Moses is not going over the Jordan. Why? He is the law. He pictures the law, and the law cannot obtain the inheritance only through faith in what Christ has done in fulfillment of the law. Will anybody cross the Jordan? If you don't remember... Jordan is a picture of Christ. He came from Mount Hermon. It's a picture of the heavenly realm. He descends. The Jordan means the descender. Ha Yarden. He descended. And where did he go? He went all the way down to the salt sea, the Dead Sea. And then the Dead Sea evaporates and rises again. The whole picture, everything about the Jordan is Christ. The law cannot cross the Jordan because it is not of works of law, but by the grace of God and Jesus Christ that you will enter the inheritance. Because of this, he is providing instruction for them to not only possess the land, but to be able to continue possessing it. When they cross over, verse 10 continues, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety. Here, the idea of rest is tied in with the elimination of the enemy and thus dwelling in safety. The idea of having obtained it is found in Joshua 23, verse 1. Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old, advanced in age. It is again seen concerning David and his kingdom in 2 Samuel 7. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now... I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside ten curtains. Because of David's efforts in defeating the enemies, it is used again by Solomon in 1 Kings 5 as the reason to build the house of the Lord. And Solomon then acknowledges that the promised rest was obtained as he prayed the invocation prayer after the temple was complete. From 1 Kings 8, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised, there has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. And yet, David, despite having subdued the enemies and provided this rest, clearly indicates that the rest that both Joshua and he had obtained was not the promised rest Moses speaks of now. He does this by using the word Today, And if you look in a good, a well-translated Bible, today will be capitalized because they're setting it off for you to understand the implication of what's being said. This is from the 95th Psalm. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The author of Hebrews then unmistakably shows that obtaining the inheritance is not of the law. He does it by first citing the 95th Psalm and then by next saying this from Hebrews 3, for who having heard rebelled, Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? Think of Israel under punishment for the past 2,000 years. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey. And when he says obey, what does that mean? It's explained explicitly right here. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. To obey in the book of Hebrews signifies 
belief. And it's the exact same thing that was said of the people that did not go into Canaan. And I made a point of showing that translators say obey the command of the Lord and it never said the command of the Lord. If you don't remember what I'm talking about, go back and watch all of the number sermons again and the beginning of Deuteronomy. The word that Moses uses is at the mouth of the Lord. The Lord said for them to do it and all they had to do was believe and go in and take Canaan and they did not. Okay, it is not obeyance to a law, it is obeyance to the mouth of the Lord, meaning belief. With that understood, he then notes that because David said today, hundreds of years after Joshua had received his rest, it means that the rest spoken of is not merely referring to rest from the physical enemies of Israel. As he says in Hebrews 4 verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he the Spirit through David, that's my words, would not have afterward spoken of another day. He then says, Hebrews 4.10, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. What this is clearly telling us is that the true, final, and anticipated rest comes only when the law is fulfilled, because the law is of works. If one ceases from his works in order to enter God's rest, it means that he is no longer under law. As the author of Hebrews says, for we who have believed do enter that rest. It has nothing to do with works of the law. Moses is speaking of earthly things, but the spirit of inspiration working through him is pointing to spiritual things. That continues with the next words. Verse 11, Then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. The word hamakom, or the place, is obviously speaking of whatever place where the tabernacle would rest. However, more especially, the words point prophetically to Jerusalem, where the temple would be built. At the location where the name of the Lord would abide, verse 11 continues, There you shall bring all that I command you. Moses now says that in the place where the Lord's name will abide, and we know it was at Shiloh for some time, eventually it moved down to Jerusalem. That's why I say prophetically, it eventually turns to Jerusalem. The people shall bring, as he says, all that I command you. The logical question is, does this imply works? The answer is yes. The command is of the law. It mandates something to be done. But the author of Hebrews says that when a person enters God's rest, he has ceased from all his works, and that the way one enters into the rest is through belief, meaning faith in Jesus Christ. Thus the rest which is being referred to now by Moses and the commands which Moses is giving to the people are only symbolic representations of the true rest that only comes by faith in the one these things anticipate and point to. Some of which are, before I give those, remember what Jesus said, you search the scriptures thinking that they in them you have eternal life, but they are which speak of me, but you refuse to come to me. All right, I know I misquoted that, but Jesus said that to him, right in John 5 and John 6. Verse 11 continues, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. This verse is very similar to verse 6 that we looked at last week. The only substantial difference is in the final clause. It said in verse 12, 6, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks, and then in 12, 11, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. In verse 6, the offerings are mandatory. In verse 11, they are voluntary until the vow is made. Once the vow is made, it says in the Bible, perform your vows, doesn't it? Once the vow is made, the offering became obligatory. In verse 6, it was seen how these things only pointed to the coming of Christ. In him is the fulfillment of them. What the people brought forward in Israel only anticipated a spiritual fulfillment. I talked about that last week. Every part of every animal is a picture of Christ. Cut off the fatty lobe from the liver and put it on the altar of burnt offering. Why? Because that picture is Christ. Go back and watch the sermon and you'll understand. Despite being mandatory offerings, other than in certain exceptions, only a portion of any of them was actually given away. The rest was consumed by the offerer. Hence, the next words, verse 12, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. This phrase was first seen in Leviticus 23.40. We saw that last week, where it was applied to the Feast of Tabernacles. In Deuteronomy, this is the second of several times it is noted. The first being last week in verse 7, 
The idea here is that the offerer would often share in the offering, and thus they would feast and rejoice in the presence of the Lord for whatever the sacrifice or offering signified. And even if they did not share in the sacrifice, such as in the whole burnt offering, that is wholly burned up, that's why it's called a whole burnt offering, or a sin offering, what would happen if you ate the sin offering? You'd be eating the sin back into yourself. The picture is burn it up, get rid of it, okay? So, they would still rejoice in what the offering signified. Be a gratitude to God for his blessings, fellowship with him, cleansing from sin, and so on. This rejoicing was to then include, verse 12 continues, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. Unlike what most scholars state, Every scholar that you hear will say the same thing. All the males were to go down to Jerusalem three times a year. Have you all heard that? Everybody's heard that? I've heard it 10 million times in sermons by people. All the males must go. Guess what? That is not the end of the story. This is what most scholars state, what most teachers pass on. And this is a command of Moses. It is not a suggestion. For example, Jameson Fawcett Brown incorrectly states, it appears that, Although males only were commanded to appear before God at the annual solemn feasts, the women were allowed to accompany them. No, this is a, a part of the law right here. This is a prescription. Everybody went to Jerusalem. Rather, Moses is instructing the households to attend as well. But there is no contradiction in this and what is said about the three pilgrim feasts elsewhere, such as Deuteronomy 16, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. In this passage here in Deuteronomy 12, in the surrounding passage of Deuteronomy 16 and elsewhere, it clearly instructs all of the people to come to the pilgrim feasts. The households were not to be excluded, and indeed, they could not be excluded, for example, from the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because the Passover that everyone had to observe, right? Everyone observed it was affixed to the feast. The fact that all the males had to appear before the Lord in those three pilgrim feasts is given under the assumption that their households would be there as well. The command for the males as representative of the households was all-inclusive. The command to attend was then to be considered by those males as to not exclude the household as is evidenced in this verse. When I said the Passover, everybody had to observe it. Every person in Israel had to observe the Passover. Well, guess what? That was to be down in Jerusalem. How do we know it? Because the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is one of the three pilgrim feasts, was down in Jerusalem. What are you going to do? Observe the Passover at night and get on your donkey and rush? halfway across the country to get down to Jerusalem in time for that? No, everybody was already there. Everybody got that? Okay. The center of this service and worship of the Lord was to be at the spot where the Lord placed his name. It is a note of unification of the worship of the people, all of them, in a single place. Hence, verse 13, take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burn offerings in every place that you see. Here, the burnt offering is spoken of as the entirety of the offerings of the previous verse. Also, the words now return to the singular. You, Israel, are to take heed concerning your burnt offerings. It may also be that Moses is speaking to each person individually. You and you and you do not do this thing. The singular will continue with one exception through the rest of our verses today. The command here was to ensure unity of worship at the sanctuary. However, it is evident from the time of the judges and later that Israel failed in this, as is evidence from Ezekiel 20. When I brought them into the land concerning which I had raised my hand and an oath to give them, and they saw all the high hills and all the thick trees, there they offered their sacrifices and provoked me. They're not doing it down in Jerusalem, are they? With their offerings, there they also set up their sweet aroma and poured out their drink offerings. The people did exactly what they were instructed to not do. Instead of seeking the Lord in the place where he dwelt, they searched out any place that suited their fancy, and they offered to the Lord or to other gods according to what was right in their own eyes. It cannot be that this is only speaking of a time after the temple was built. That would not occur for more than 400 years. 
It certainly was intended to mean at the place of the tabernacle or whatever other place the Lord so chose until the temple was erected. That is clearly evidenced in what is next said. Verse 14, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings and there you shall do all that I command you. He again speaks of the place which the Lord chooses. It could be argued that this only speaks of burnt offerings, but that is proven false by the words, Vesham ta'ase kol ashur anochi metzavecha. And there you shall do all that I command you. In other words, the burnt offering stands as representative of everything else. This was perfectly understood from later passages, such as Joshua 21. Then they said, in fact, there is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebona. The yearly feast was one of the Leviticus 23 feasts of the Lord. It was observed at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. That feast is a part of what Moses is speaking of right now when he says, and all that I command you. Sanctuary worship did occur, but there was not a unity of it among the people of Israel in direct violation of the words of Moses now. However, it is seen elsewhere that not having a permanent temple was used as a pretext to do whatever anyone wanted. In 1 Kings 3, 2 through 4, it says the following. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places in contradistinction to the law. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. That is where the tabernacle was, not all of the high places. Gibeon was where the tabernacle was then located, as is evidenced in 2 Chronicles 1 verse 3. Along with the altar of burnt offering, even though the ark was still down in Jerusalem, David had it brought down there. And even after the building of the temple, the record of the king's constant failures of the people by not worshiping only before the Lord in Jerusalem. It's recorded everywhere. Something more, something much greater was needed to unite the people in worship. What it, would it be? It would be something internal, not something external. The reason for this is rightly explained by Adam Clark. He says, to prevent idolatry and bring about a perfect uniformity in the divine worship, which at the time was essentially necessary because every rite and ceremony had a determinate meaning and pointed out the good things which were to come. Therefore, one place must be established where those rites and ceremonies should be carefully and punctually observed. Had it not been so, every man would have formed his worship according to his own mind and the whole beauty and importance of the grand representative system would have been destroyed and the Messiah and the glories of his kingdom could not have been seen through the medium of the Jewish ritual. For uniformity in every part of the divine worship, the same necessity does not now exist because that which was typified is come, meaning Jesus, and the shadows have all fled away. Yet, when it can be obtained, how desirable is it that all sincere Christians should with one mouth as well as with one heart glorify their common Lord and Savior. Stated a little less wordily than Adam Clark, everything points to Jesus. I've said this before, I'll say it again. When they constructed the tabernacle, Bezalel and the people with them, every single detail pointed to Jesus Christ. Every color, every metal, every type of wood, everything, every dimension, every sacrifice, Everything pointed to Jesus. It is unity of worship so that they could someday see Christ when he came. And that's why we don't have to have a set form of worship anymore. It's because we have the substance and not the shadow. We have Jesus Christ and not pictures of him. The unity of worship was necessary to reveal him. Anything else would have destroyed that typology. And now that he has come and fulfilled it, these shadows that only anticipated him are no longer needed. Having said that, those things that were not relevant to that typology had no restrictions bound to them. We'll see that in just a second. You shall do these things as I instruct you, or not do what has been forbidden as well. All is laid out so you know what to do. Just be obedient to what the word does tell. 
doing these things has a reason. And so you are to do them as I instruct you. This will continue on for a season, but someday the doing of them will be through. They only anticipate me and those things I will do. And in my doing, those things will be done. Someday I will be the focus and hope of each one of you. That is, when the course of this law has been run. Our second thought today, maintaining the typology. It's verses 15 through 19. Verse 15. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, whatever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Slaughtering of animals for consumption was not considered a sacrifice or offering as long as it was not presented as such, and I'll also say, or as long as it was not mandated as such, such as the firstborn of the flock or herd, okay? There. Hence, there was no typology of Christ to mar in the act. Therefore, this was considered perfectly acceptable. In fact, having, capturing, or buying meat is considered a blessing of the Lord, not something offensive or wrong. Thus, it was to be accepted as such. However, back in Leviticus 17, I need to clear something up in case you get to this passage someday and say, well, wait a minute, that contradicts what we're reading in Deuteronomy. Leviticus 17, it said, speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or who kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people to the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. That was a law for the time in the wilderness. Once the people were in the land of Canaan, it would no longer apply. Does everybody see that? Okay, I wanted to make sure you understood that. They would be spread out through all of the land and were allowed to freely do as they wished in this regard. This included, verse 15 going on, the unclean and the clean may eat of it. This is the middle of the chiasm found in the passage. Whoever wanted could eat of such meat. This means that even those excluded from the society, such as lepers who were unclean, could be brought this meat to eat. This is unlike the laws of certain animals offered to the Lord that were forbidden to be eaten by the unclean. Does everybody remember that? Many times in Leviticus. If they did so, the law says that such were to be cut off from their people. They had violated the typology of the coming Messiah. That's why these things are being done. However, no typology of Christ is violated in this. Therefore, it was considered perfectly acceptable and good. This included, verse 15 going on, of the gazelle and the deer alike. Katsivi ve ka'ayal. As of the gazelle and as of the deer. Here, the tsivi or gazelle is introduced. It is a gazelle or a roebuck, but it also means beauty even when referring to the beautiful branch of the Lord in Isaiah 4, verse 2, or the beautiful land of Israel in Ezekiel 20, verse 6. Also, the ayal, or deer, is introduced. It is in the intensive form of the word ayil, or a ram. It thus signifies a stag or a male deer. The reason for including these is certainly to show that they were considered acceptable as food. Remember Leviticus chapter 11 and the dietary laws, and then we went through it again? Okay, but they bore no specific typology of Christ that must otherwise be considered. Okay, everybody see, it's all about typology. All of the animals that are mandated and named by name, either in Leviticus or in Deuteronomy, I'm talking about the clean ones, are herding animals. They're animals that you keep. They flock together. It's a picture of you and me, right? These aren't herding animals. Nobody herds up these deer and roebuck. The there's no typology, so they can eat what they want. In other words, these are not animals of the herd or flock that required the dedication of the firstborn to the Lord, nor were they acceptable as sacrificial animals. But they were clean according to the law. They were considered clean animals, and they could be hunted and eaten at will. However, the time-old prohibition that even predates the law of Moses still stands, verse 16, only you shall not eat the blood. 
suddenly. And only for this clause, the pronoun returns to the plural. Only you all shall not eat the blood. It was not that Israel was forbidden to eat the blood, but exceptions would be made. Rather, no exception was to be made for any person. After the flood, animals that were previously forbidden to be eaten were granted to man as food. However, even then, the Lord stated a prohibition that was expected to be adhered to in Genesis 9, verses 2 through 4. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is its blood. Now, whenever I read that set of verses, I always think of my time in Malaysia. I lived in the Chinese district, Pataling Jaya, section two. And they have a saying in the Chinese culture, if it flies in the sky, if it moves on the land, or if it swims in the ocean, we will eat it comes right out of the book of Genesis. The Lord specifically identifies the blood as the life. Thus, verse 16 continues, you shall pour it on the earth like water. The pronouns return to the singular here. You, Israel, or you, each of you, the law was previously established back in Leviticus 17. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with the dust, for it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. The reason for this is complicated, and it should be supplemented by reviewing that sermon from Leviticus 17. In short, the prohibition of eating blood was given because it is the vehicle of life. For this reason, the Lord reserved all blood to himself. To eat the blood was to assimilate into oneself something that belonged to him alone. It was therefore idolatrous to use it in any other way than designated by him. If it was not used in the rites of the tabernacle, and you remember there are 10,000 different ways they applied the blood in this and that, it was to otherwise be poured out and covered with earth. In pouring out the blood like water and then covering it with the dust, the typology points directly to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. From the dust, man was made, but he wasn't yet alive. Only in the breathing of the Lord into the nostrils of man did he become a nefesh chaya, or soul living. In man or animal, when the life is poured out, the dust reclaims ownership over what is left. This is true, but with one exception. It is Jesus, the Lord God, who actually was the one who breathed life into man. And yet, he then descended from the man he breathed life into. In the shedding of his blood upon the ground from which his earthly body came, he gave up his soul. And yet, the ground found no victory over him. The life returned, the soul reanimated, and by the power of the Lord God, he walked out of that tomb. Atonement for us was made with the pouring out of his soul. And yet, he lives. Only in him is true and eternal life. The typology must be maintained, even when not a part of the sacrificial rites at the altar. Understanding this, Moses continues with more typological hints of Christ. Verse 17, you may not eat within your gates the tithes of your grain or your new wine or your oil, of the firstborn of your herd or your flock, of any of your offerings which you vow, of your free will offerings or of the heave offering of your hand. The verse begins with lo tochal le'echol, no eating to eat. In other words, you are not able to eat. This is because this stands as a legal prohibition against it. From there, Moses defines what that means with the rest of the verse. The comparable verses in this chapter, 6 and 11, with the noted exceptions, were all in the plural. This verse, however, is all in the singular. Again, as has been seen at other times, this is certainly put forth this way to avoid anyone making any exceptions. There was to be no equivocating on the laws laid down here. And so Moses speaks to them all individually and also to Israel as a whole collectively. 
As has been seen in one sermon or another, each of these things anticipates Jesus Christ, the tithes, the firstborn, and the offerings. Therefore, for the sake of unity of worship, the people were told that they could not eat these things in just any place. To do so would mar the typology. There was to be a unity of worship because all people come to Christ in exactly the same manner. There is not one way for this person or group and another for that person or group. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. Thus, the corporate nature of what was to be done by Israel negates any individualized attempts at coming to Christ. The idea here is expressed in Galatians 1, 6 through 8, where Paul clearly says that there is one gospel and any other is not only not a gospel, but it is, in fact, anathema. What typologically anticipates him was to be experienced through unity of worship at the place that bore the name of the Lord God. In order to maintain this unity, Moses next says, verse 18, but you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses. Everything that has just been described is to be eaten by the people. Yes, including their ties. They ate their ties. Remember that when we get to Deuteronomy 14, that the spot where the Lord chose to place his name. To prepare you for the Deuteronomy 14 sermon, we will evaluate what this means in regard to the tithes, which are eaten by the people. Most scholars, probably because they were also preachers wanting to not lose out on their prophets, say that this refers to a second tithe, not the mandated tithe of Israel. That is utter rubbish. The word never speaks of a second tithe. The source of this supposed second tithe comes from rabbinical writings, as if you want to get your theology there, folks, and an apocryphal book, Tobit. What is recorded there doesn't match even closely with what is stated here in the Law of Moses. I'm going to read you from Tobit. But I alone used to see if this matches what you know of the tithes in Israel. But I alone used to go often to Jerusalem for the festivals, as was prescribed for all Israel by long-standing decree, bringing with me the firstfruits of the crops, the firstlings of the flock, the tithes of livestock, and the first shearings of sheep. I used to hasten to Jerusalem. So he's kind of following the law there, right? And present them to the priests, Aaron's sons, at the altar. To the Levites ministering in Jerusalem, I used to give the tithe of grain, wine, olive oil, pomegranates, figs, and other fruits. Six years in a row, which the Bible says nothing of that, I used to give a second tithe in money, which each year I would go to pay in Jerusalem. So they pulled this out of an apocryphal book, just like the Catholic Church does with purgatory, right? The third year tithe I gave to orphans, widows, and converts, which is what the law says to do, who had joined the Israelites. It's a little amending of the law, but it's basically that. Every third year, I would bring them this offering, and we ate it in keeping with the decree laid down in the Mosaic law concerning it. And according to the commands of Deborah, the mother of my father, Tobiel, for my father had died and left me an orphan. Of this precept, in Deuteronomy, I'm talking about the verses we're looking at in Deuteronomy, the scholar Kyle says, and I want you to pay attention to what he says, in the laws contained in the earlier books, nothing is said about the appropriation of any portion of the tithes to sacrificial meals. In other words, what he's saying is there's nothing so far in the books of Moses that say anything about you eating your tithes. Okay, here's what he says. Yet in Deuteronomy, this is simply assumed as a customary thing and not introduced as a new commandment when the law is laid down. Like other scholars, Kyle then went on to speak of the passage in Tobit to justify his stand on a second tithe. But the very fact that this practice was assumed as a customary thing demonstrates that what Moses says here is not referring to a second tithe. Rather, it speaks of the one and the only tithe levied upon Israel. That customary thing will be revealed in the coming Deuteronomy chapter 14 sermon. You'll have to wait a few more weeks, but you'll get there. And you'll have the final tithe sermon that I'm going to do. I've done a couple already, and you're going to have all of the information. And when somebody says to you in the church that you attend someday, be sure to pass up your tithes today, you can say, oh, I don't think so. Okay? I'm going to reinsert the law of Moses in one precept and in no other. I'm going to preach you grace until you are blue in the face. But when it comes to money, I'm going to preach the law. It doesn't work that way, folks. This is what is known here as progressive revelation. A precept is introduced and then it is later explained and expanded upon. Moses now explains that expansion right here in Deuteronomy. 
If he had meant for this to be a second tithe, he would have said so. And any scholar with a modicum of sense would affirm it as such. This is especially so when Israel had not even started tithing as described by Moses because they had never been in the land in order to do so. Unfortunately, what is stated later in Deuteronomy 14 is so offensive to scholars, pastors, and preachers of the Bible that they must insert something clearly indefensible into their theological bag of tricks to keep the money coming in. Verse 18 going on, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your gates. These words correspond to verse 12. There the pronouns were in the plural as were the nouns sons, daughters, male servants, and female servants. Here, both the pronouns and the nouns are in the singular. Again, this is a precept that is to be obeyed. It is incorrect to say that only the men were required to go on the pilgrim feasts. These verses clearly show that the men were to go, but they were to be accompanied by any household that dwelt with them. The use of both the plural and the singular is given to absolutely solidify this fact. And there's a reason for it. Verse 18 going on. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all which you put your hands. Aren't you happy reading that? Continuing in the singular, the reason is the same as before, but with a different focus on the audience. Before it was you all, each of you. Now it is you collectively. Each person was to rejoice before the Lord and Israel, the united people Israel were to rejoice before the Lord. They were to acknowledge that the produce of the labor of their hands was ultimately derived from his open hand of grace. But they were to also remember another precept of the law. Verse 19 finishes us up today with, Take heed to yourself that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in the land. Here, it should more precisely be translated and say, On the earth rather than in your land. Despite that, this verse takes us back to verse 12. There, Moses spoke to the people in the plural. You all are to do this. However, here it continues in the singular. You, Israel, are to do this. The people individually and collectively bore the responsibility of tending to the Levites. As they were taken in place of the firstborn, they fit their own picture of Christ. Go back and watch the earlier Numbers sermons. In this, the Levites were then to be tended to by the people for their ministry to the people. They had no inheritance of land like the other tribes, and they were dependent upon the people for the meeting of their needs. Therefore, when the people ate their own tithes, Deuteronomy 14, we're going to be there soon, the people eat their own tithes, okay, as prescribed by Moses, they were also to remember the Levites and minister to them in an appropriate manner. This precept is not unlike Paul's words to the Galatians. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. So if you make nice cookies, bring some to Charlie, okay? <laughs> with that, the passage is complete for the week. The main two thoughts that we can take away with us from it are, one, there was to be a unity of worship by the people toward the Lord God because that worship anticipated the person and work of Jesus Christ. And two, in Christ's fulfillment of these things, we now have the fullness of them in him. And that's why at the beginning of the sermon, when I said there's nothing in the New Testament to tell you what to do, it's because we have exactly what we need to do. Worship Jesus. We are to worship God through Jesus. We are to anticipate seeing Jesus, pray through Jesus to God. All of these things are said, but there's no formal way of doing it because we have what the typology only anticipated. We have Jesus. We no longer need to observe these or any other aspects of the law of Moses. We are to worship in spirit and in truth because this is what Christ Jesus has ordained for his people. In him we have the substance and not the shadow. In him we have the antitype and not the type. In him we have unfettered access to God instead of a restrictive mode of worship that was ministered to by fallible people in an earthly location that has been swept clean several times in redemptive history. Where Zion was plowed like a field, the rock who is Jesus Christ has continued on without change. Let us remember this as we conduct our lives in his presence. Let us hold fast and not be swept back into legalism and into bondage. This is the lesson of the law. Let us learn it and let us apply it to our walk 
with our Lord. May it be so. If today you have never called on Jesus Christ, I would pray that today would be the day. And I think we should pray for these three gentlemen who are going up to Tampa today because they are going to be evangelizing people that have no idea of the contents of this word. And they may meet somebody else that's stuck in the bondage of Hebrew roots, thinking that they're saved and they're up there working their way to heaven. They got a lot of work and a long climb to go and they will never make it. There is freedom in Christ. There is simple belief that he died for your sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he went into the grave proving that he was dead. He came out of the grave without your sins. Your sins are in the grave forever. Not two ever, not three ever, but forever. They are gone, okay? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. All who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. This is our hope. Go out and tell people. Grab some tracks on the way out. Pass them out. I know you're going to dinner soon. Anybody that's going to the Korean restaurant, Shilla, today, okay, I don't know, but if you want to, go up to Shilla, up at the Sarasota Commons, and it's Moon Suk's birthday today. I attended church with her for years. She's a wonderful Christian lady. If you go over there, have dinner, have some bulgogi for me, because I'll be doing my church work until late. But Moon Suk is her name. Wish her a happy birthday. Our closing verse, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. That's hard for me. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Next week, we got Deuteronomy 12, 20 through 32. It would be a problem, I must admit... And so to this precept, you must commit. It's entitled, you shall not add to it, nor take away from it. That'll be our 41st Deuteronomy sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now I got a question for you. And if you answer the question, you get one of those powerful race cars over there that you can drive home today. All right, they're from Tom and Stacy, And we got a couple left, and then I got something else to start handing out to people. But you can pick one of them. Let's see here. The word today forbids eating blood. Where is not eating blood explicitly stated in the New Testament, and what is the context? No, not John. That's where Jesus says, my blood is real blood. And my flesh, what? Okay, no. It's not eating blood. Come on, somebody's going to get it. Just think. I know you're on the spot. Not eating blood. Where in the New Testament is it mentioned? I'll give you a hint. I'm, first, I'm going to give you the hint. Yes. Acts. Acts. Okay, and do you know what chapter? Can you pick one of the two chapters it's mentioned? Fifteen, man, this guy, you get to drive a sports car home. Yeah, yes, yes, come and pick it. As a matter of fact, what I want you to do before you pick a sports car, I want you to come up here. Because I want these people to see you. Come on over, you got to get into this box right here. If, you, if they can see you, this guy is going up to evangelize people today at the Super Bowl. So he and two others, grab your sports car and drive that baby home. Uh, very good. It's Acts 15, verse 20, nothing strangled, no blood, etc. And there's a context. The context is that the, the Jewish nation would have been offended at this practice, okay? Paul later talks about all of those particular issues in his epistles. But Acts 15, 20 and Acts 21, 25 is the context, okay? So, I got a poem for you, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. This is entitled, In the Place Which the Lord Your God Chooses. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest in the inheritance, which the Lord your God is giving you that marvelous surprise. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety, a gift to you, and not by merit." Then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide in that land that you trod, 
There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the whole horde, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters too, your male and female servants and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see. This you shall not do. But in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. However, you may not slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, whatever your heart desires according to the Lord your God's blessing, which he has given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike, and have some salad with dressing. Only you shall not eat the blood, this you shall not do. You shall pour it on the earth like water, as the Lord has instructed you. You may not eat within your gates the tithes of your grain, or your new wine, or your oil of the firstborn of your herd, so please understand, or your flock of any of your offerings which you vow, of your free will offerings, of the heave offering of your hand. But you must eat them before the Lord your God, in the place which the Lord your God chooses. Please be observant, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant. And the Levite who is within your gates, and you shall rejoice as everyone understands before the Lord your God in all to which you put your hands. Take heed to yourself that you do not forsake, but for him have an open hand, the Levite, as long as you live in the land. Lord God, Turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for this beautiful passage which points to the giving of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that your beautiful word conveys to us each and every time we open it. We thank you for giving us insights in your word as we meditate on it before we sleep and when we rise in the morning and as we walk along the road during the day. Lord, we thank you for this. And we also certainly pray for Kathleen's mother, Shirley. We would pray that your hand would be upon her and get oxygen flowing to her brain so that she can function properly and without any pain or, or confusion of mind. And we pray for anyone else who is suffering with any other difficulty or trial. Uh, Darlene's mother, uh, I would pray for her right now as well. She's certainly at home and she's just just taking care of her mom in such a faithful way, and we pray for her. And Lord, we thank you for Moon Suk, whose birthday is today, and I pray that she has a good birthday as she goes about her life and also praising you as she does. And Lord, we lift up these gentlemen who are going up to Tampa soon, that their ministry will be effective and that people will have their eyes opened to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We pray this to your honor, to your glory, and that they will be saved and spend eternity in your presence. And we pray it in his beautiful name. Amen.